I was sitting in the green room with a comedian, I think, who was coming on after me after I was interviewed by Jenny Murray. And the uh, researcher came in and she said to this woman, you're on after a piece about women in the Conservative Party, so that won't take long, will it? And they kind of sniggered. And when I went into the studio, I repeated this story. I felt so ashamed. I felt ashamed of my party and I felt ashamed that we couldn't deliver better. And what was it all about? And the party needed to just wake up and smell the coffee. Welcome back to Power Done Differently, the podcast that asks, what if there are everyday lion hearts living among us? What if they aren't white dudes in suits? And what if they can show us a better way? I'm joined this week by Baroness Jenkin of Kennington, a member of the House of Lords who, in her own words, gets stuff done, rattles cages, and wings it much of the time. My kind of woman. Baroness Jenkin, or Anne, as she is also known, has been instrumental in heading the campaign for greater representation of women in UK politics. Alongside former Prime Minister Theresa May, Anne is co-founder and chair of Women to Win, a campaign group that is committed to identifying, training, and mentoring women candidates in the Conservative Party for public office, whether that be in Parliament or local government. In 2005, when Women to Win first launched, there were just 17 Conservative women MPs representing only 9% of the Parliamentary Party. Now, after 16 years and four elections, there are 67 Conservative women MPs, which is over 20% and still growing, known for her representation of being frank and willing to talk about uncomfortable topics. I just had to sit down and chat with her. Just a quick note that this episode is brought to you in collaboration with 5050 Parliament. 5050 Parliament is a cross-party campaign taking action to get more women elected to Parliament. Through their Ask Her to Stand initiative, they encourage supporters to nominate women they believe should stand for office before offering them the support and guidance they need to make it happen. Check out the show notes after the episode to find out more about the campaign and how you can get involved. As an American, I sometimes don't know what to do with these English titles, but I obviously don't want to be disrespectful. So my first question was, should I call her Baroness Jenkin throughout the interview or Anne? Baroness Jenkin of Kennington is my stage name. I'm not one of those baronesses. Some of them like to use it, but like, (laughs) not me. Despite coming from what most would call a political dynasty, she remains a reluctant politician and suffers from the same old imposter syndrome that most of us do. I mean, most people who go into the House of Lords, I think, genuinely have probably actively lobbied for it. And for me, it was like, no, really? Me? Why? It was the old imposter syndrome thing. What did I have to offer? You'll soon realize the answer is a hell of a lot. Anne was nominated as a life peer for her work leading Women to Win by Prime Minister David Cameron in 2011, but it took some convincing to get her to accept. I went to see quite a few people, including actually our leader at the time, Lord Strathclyde, and and one other, you was supposed to keep it a complete secret, obviously, when this happens. And uh, I then had a six-week period before David Cameron rang up and said, are you going to do this? But I went to see Strathclyde and I said, oh, I'm not sure, Thomas, I don't think it's for me. I might not like it. He said, look, if you don't like it, you don't have to come. And um, so in the end, and obviously, you know, I don't want to make it sound as though it's not the huge honour that it obviously is. But in the end, I persuaded myself that I could do some good for the causes I cared about by being there. It still felt very intimidating and the chamber and the processes and the 
you know, the technical stuff still, you know, I'm still not very good at it, but I've got better. I've been there 10 years now and I know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And I'm not going to beat myself up about the bits that I'm not so good at because the things that I am good at, I can make the difference that I wanted to. Despite that reluctance, this was hardly Anne's first exposure to Westminster. She was born in 1955 to the Honorable Charles and Jean Strutt, and in so doing, unknowingly became the next generation in a long line of prominent politicians representing all three of the UK's major political parties. Oh, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall at Christmas dinner. While several of Anne's relatives in both her immediate family and further afield held office in Parliament, it was one of those relatives in particular who set the scene for what's to come. That would be her great-grandfather, Sir Willoughby Dickinson, the Member of Parliament for St Pancras North, here in central London. He'd already been in local government. He'd been, I think, the first leader of the London County Council, Mm. and his father was an MP, MP for Stroud. But he, Willoughby, stood as a Liberal MP in 1906. An early feminist, he introduced the Women's Enfranchisement Bill in the House of Commons in February 1907, and then reintroduced it every year until the outbreak of war in the hope of giving women the right to vote. He also called for equal pay for women way back in 1903 and secured financial support for the masses of women who were left widowed by the First World War. My mother tells us that he was known as a bit of a goody-goody in the family, but I still would have loved to have met him. You know, he worked with all the key suffragettes and suffragists of the time. And in that film, Suffragette with Carrie Milliken, when she's giving evidence, I, I kind of imagine him in that room. Following the war, he was a crucial member of the Speaker's Conference in 1916 to 17, the recommendations of which led to the Representation of People Act 1918, which gave women the right to vote and to stand for election in the UK for the very first time. Through his years of parliamentary campaigning, Sir Willoughby had the franchise knowledge, the cross-party contacts, and the experience of suffrage debates to produce a solution to the deadlock. He emerged as the conference's deal-breaker, winning a majority of one vote by suggesting that age be used as the discriminatory barrier to voting. It seems weird that it was so controversial then, Uh, But I think it was because all the political parties were fearful of what it would do to them if women got the vote. They weren't at all sure which way it was going to go. So he finally got the the actual representation of the People Act uh, in 1918. He was a teller and uh, was heavily involved in it. His motivation for giving women the right to vote was personal. I think his main motivation was because his sister was a doctor And he couldn't see why, you know, he had the vote and she didn't. She was a clever woman. And that was his motivation. Yet it came at a cost. It didn't do anything for his career. I mean, he would have done, I think, the general feeling from what I sort of read up and what the historian in the House of Commons uh, told me is that he would have had a better career if he hadn't espoused this as a cause. It was not popular and although he was ultimately successful in getting the bill through or being part of the story of getting the bill through, he actually lost his seat in 1918, which was the first election where women actually, some women actually had the vote. But it's a tremendous heritage to have. And I think that the men, and we have to remember it, they were all men who made this happen. Uh, they've been sort of slightly overshadowed in the history of the suffragette and suffragist movements, because it's all about the Pankhursts and 
Millicent Fawcett. But in the end, if they hadn't got supporters in Parliament, they couldn't have got the legislation through. Mm. And I've somewhere seen a diary of his where Millicent Fawcett wrote to him and said, we knew you were our one true supporter right the way through, which is of immense pride to me. And then my granny went, got in in 1937, the 33rd ever woman MP, and he was alive to see that happen, which was great. And she was quite a dominant figure in my life, because uh, certainly my early working life, because she lived around the corner. She always lived in Westminster. She was a peer as well as an MP, a very early peer, because they started women uh, and life peers in 1959. And she got in in 62, I think. You know, when people say, who is it that, you know, who's your hero? Who's your motivation? Well, in the end, Granny was because she was a very powerful and attractive figure in the Conservative Party. And, you know, if I emulate myself on anything, it is on her, really. She knew how to make stuff happen, too. Anne's own political journey began pretty early. Her first job was as a personal assistant with what is now the Conservative Party headquarters. (laughs) As I always say, I was expensively but not very well educated. There was no sort of, not real expectation that you would go on to university or achieve. And despite the fact that one of my great-grandfathers was won the Nobel Prize for Physics at the same time as another one was introducing the first women's suffrage bill, there wasn't really an expectation that I would go to university. So I didn't. And I didn't try very hard at school. I didn't think I particularly... I found a diary the other day. It says, exactly Bridget Jones, you know, nine stone seven mustard diet. Um, hoping to meet some boys in the paperback library, which is the sort of thing we used to, <laughs> used to do. Anyway, um, stories all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid that's a that's a that's a teenage girl thing. Um, but so, literally, my first job could have been girl from my sort of background. I might have gone to Sotheby's, or I might have gone to a I don't know wine company or something. It just happened that I went to Conservative Central Office. And so, over the next decade, Anne worked for about a dozen NPs as what is now known as a researcher. I've never really escaped it. I mean, I feel it's like an elastic band that every now and again I make a dash for freedom and it snaps me back. But I, I mean, I have done a few other jobs and I have, you know, I've started a company and I've done, I've done other things. But in the end, it's where my, it's not where my expertise is, but it's where my, I was even going to say comfort zone and that's not quite right either. But it's sort of my village, if you like. And, you know, a lot of my neighbours are not very nice people, but I know how to, I know how to navigate it. Yeah, And although one doesn't really see it as a skill, it's a huge advantage. And I don't want to navigate it for myself. I'm not interested in that, but I want to help other people learn how to navigate it because it's such a weird world and the maze that that it is and the people and the personality. You know, if I went into one of the bars today and I saw two or three people together from different parties or whatever – I would know what they were talking about. Mm. I know who they are, what their agenda is, and it's too late for me to do, to do anything else. So I may as well use what I have, that knowledge, that experience, if you like, for good. You stood once stood for, once. for yeah. Parliament. Yeah. Um, how did you make the decision to do that? Well, it sounds really weird when I think about it. I met my husband in 1984. I met him at the party conference the year of the Brighton bomb. And I thought it would be a conference romance because there was quite a lot of that sort of thing in those days. It probably still is today. And, uh, you know, here we are millions of years later. So on the Tuesday of party conference every year, we kind of like celebrate our anniversary. I don't remember what the date was, but we know it's the Tuesday of conference. Anyway, he was a very ambitious young man and he was going to fight the 87 election. He thought he was just doing a trial run, but, you know, they picked him straight away for Glasgow Central. Anne's husband, Bernard, 
himself the son of a former cabinet minister under Margaret Thatcher, went on to be elected as an MP in 1992 and was awarded a knighthood, honoring his political and public service in 2018. And then what happened was that I was going to go up and support him. And because they had difficulty filling the seats, uh, particularly with any women, they sort of more or less said, well, if you're going to be up here anyway, would you like to have a go at standing yourselves? Because they knew I was quite political by then. And so I... I mean, I had to go through a process, but I did. So I got selected, even though I was a totally inappropriate candidate. Well, we both were, really. Why were you inappropriate? I don't know that it mattered quite so much then, but they would never dream of having an English candidate in a Scottish seat today. Mm. I mean, in those days, more than today, it was really much more about getting a challenging seat under your belt so you've got the experience to move on to a better seat next time. Mm. But I didn't, well, I mean... I was going to say I didn't enjoy the experience much. I didn't. I didn't like the hostility of it. I didn't like the fact that they sort of spit at you in the street because of the colour of your rosette. I am a much more consensual sort of person, really. But I mean, it was interesting and I'm glad I did it, but it absolutely clarified for me that I didn't want to go on with it. Mm. And it's I'm not temperamentally suited to it. I'm very well temperamentally suited to being an MP's wife. Uh, and for years and years, I was incredibly supportive. And I would turn back into Mrs. Jenkins at the weekend and draw the raffle. And I certainly didn't intend to have a, well, as I say, a political career of my own as we started the conversation. So on that, how did promoting women yeah. in the Conservative Party yeah. become your problem to solve? So, well... It's a story. So in 2005, we had a general election, which Michael Howard was our leader, and we made absolutely zero progress. We were stuck at 9%. Incidentally, when Theresa May was elected in 1997, I want you to picture this. She was one of 13 Conservative women MPs facing 101 Labour MPs the other side. Now, of course, that was because we had a Blair landslide they had used uh, all women shortlist. They'd used a mechanism that my party would never use. Uh, but even so, it's quite a visual thought of the 13 and the 101. Hmm. So roll forward, uh, nothing had happened. And despite party leaders and the party sort of saying they wanted things to happen, but they didn't seem to do anything. And after the 2005 election, I'd written an article because, you know, I've been around a long time. I knew a lot of people. I'd written something for the Sunday Times about finding a better mechanism, finding a better, more level playing field for selection. Actually, what happens is that two girls, were, two women were deselected just before the election. And one was to do with the length of her skirt, I think. And the other one had either slept with the chairman or not slept with the chairman. I don't remember what, but anyway, it was a, you know. So, so super relevant, valid reasons. It was absolutely <laughs> infuriating. My blood started to boil. I started to take an interest in it. I wrote this article. Then you were in the cuttings. Then we had a bad election result. Then I went on Woman's Hour. And I was sitting in the green room with a comedian, I think, who was coming on after me after I was interviewed by Jenny Murray. And the uh, researcher came in and she said to this woman, you're on after a piece about women in the Conservative Party, so that won't take long, will it? And they kind of sniggered. And when I went into the studio, I repeated this story. I felt so ashamed. I felt ashamed of my party and I felt ashamed of that we couldn't deliver better. And what was it all about? And the party needed to just wake up and smell the coffee. Also on the program was Professor Sarah Childs from the University of Bristol, 
who was well known to those following the debate about women in Parliament. After the program, Baroness Jenkin googled her email and sent a message asking for a private seminar about what the Conservative Party could and should do to attract more women candidates, get them selected, and get them elected. The genesis for Women to Win came a few months later. Anne was attending the 60th birthday celebration of Michael Ancram, the then deputy leader of the Conservative Party, on the morning of July 7th, 2005, just a few short hours before four coordinated suicide bombings were carried out on London's public transportation system. I was at a breakfast party and I'd started to talk to Theresa May and there were other senior Conservative women there. And we said, we've got to do something. And we didn't know what something was. And... um I can get fired up quite quite easily once I get going. And so we had a couple of few meetings that autumn. We launched Women to Win, which we thought would be a sort of pressure group within the party, if you like, just kind of rattling the cage a bit. Two weeks before David Cameron became leader, and we launched it with an event which was full of normal-looking women. And he sent somebody, Steve Hilton actually, I think, came to that. And he said, my Lord, this is the first Conservative Party event I've been to where it was got sort of like real people who care about this as an issue. And then David won. And the first speech he made was about wanting to have the party better reflecting the country he hoped to serve and all that. And so we were up and going, really. And although he didn't do as much as he could have done, uh, he definitely supported it. And like most prime ministers, they go around saying, well, if only I'd done a bit more of that at the beginning. Uh, but he was on side and we did go incrementally from 9% to 16%, from 16% to 20 and then up to 24 And so we've plodded forward from those, those 19 women MPs up to 87 today, every one of whom I am proud of. And I'm now focused a bit more on retention than we have been in the past because I don't want to lose them because they find the, dif- the job, not the job difficult, but the environment difficult and the challenges that we now have with, with social media and all the rest of it. But I, you cannot take your foot off the pedal on this at all, ever. Mm. So every party chairman sort of pays lip service to it. They want it to happen, but they don't want to put the effort in themselves and they kind of think they can leave it to me. <laughs> um, I mean, they've said it in select committee hearings. They've said, oh, no, no, we leave all that to women to win. Well, that's, you know, me. But I, I found it a very motivational campaign, really, in the 15 plus years we've been going now, because going out and finding these women and and supporting them through and helping them to get selected, and every success is is their success. But I feel so proud of them for having overcome all the challenges of you know getting the interview getting selected and and into into parliament and you know i hope that and when i'm an older old lady rather than a middle-aged lady um i will still be sitting in the in the gallery watching them make their maiden speeches and feeling just as emotional about them in the future as i do about the the ones today so can you tell me more about what women to win does precisely to support conservative women candidates to their journey to public office. So we're external to the party. The party's women's organization, and it's called the Conservative Women's Organization, CWO, and it has to live by their rules. And it's like plumbing through treacle for them, I think. And how we've arranged it with the CWO is that they, in theory, uh, go out and look for new talent because they're grassroots and they have, you know, they're everywhere. Well, in theory, everywhere. And they 
do a number of training sessions to get them through what is called the Parliamentary Assessment Centre. That is the, the quality control mechanism to get onto the candidates list, which, by the way, other parties don't have. But you go through a day of tests and trials, which are designed to you know make sure that you are the right character, basically, to be an MP. And in the end, in my experience, it does come down to character. You know, you know why you're there, you know what you want, want to get to, and you're not like a shrinking violet. You're confident in yourself. I just, after all these years, I can smell it if I see one. Mm. And so we pick them up once they've passed that, because the early years are done by other people. And we do a number of things after that. We run regular, what we call speakers' corners, because you know public speaking is a big part of it, even though it's an uncomfortable place for a lot of women. We do lots of Q&A practice because we're just trying to get women ahead of the competition to get selected, mm. ideally for good seats. And it's a highly competitive business because if you think that on the candidates list at any one time, there are usually about 600 people. Traditionally, about a third of those are women. And we might get, let's say, if we're lucky, 60 vacancies next time with retirement seats and boundary changes and so on. If we're very lucky, we might get half of those to be women. That would be our aim. I mean, I would like to have more, but I'm just being realistic. So we're talking about 30 of, let's say, our elite candidates who have got to be five-star, ready for any seat and at the top of their game. Mm. So it would be every time we change it slightly, but you know, we'll find mentors for them, MPs or other people who can support them show them how to get into groups and practice together. Joy was in a group, I think, with four candidates last time. That's Joy Morrissey, the MP for Beaconsfield, and my fellow American who I've interviewed on the podcast. They met weekly and they would do Q&A practice and critique each other. All four of those are now MPs because they were ready for it. We have done, very successfully actually, some away weekends in a youth hostel in North London which nobody in the party's ever done before. And probably out of those weekends, I think we had 25 at a time and probably about 10 of them are now MPs. And of course, it gives them friendships, if you like, which are very important. And the party leaves all this to us and don't put any investment into it, which from time to time makes my blood boil, but most of the time I just get on with it. And when, when there's a seat coming up, we will try and identify who... And then when they get into the, when they get through the various hoops, and they get into the final, we will put on quite sort of intensive work with them. Mm. But we've had two funny elections where they've been snap elections, and the parties at the centre has had far more control about who got interviewed where, because in the normal course of events, a seat will come up, anybody on the candidates list can apply for it. So suppose you've got six hundred, you might get three hundred applications for a good conservative seat. And then the local party members normally, in a normal election, would do the SIF themselves with some support from the centre, but they're very um, suspicious of the centre. Uh, whereas in the two previous elections, the centre, CCHQ, has been able to control who the finalists have been in those seats. Mm. And they genuinely wanted us to have women and our party members can be part of the problem. I mean, it's a weird thing that they don't understand. I mean, I don't want to be personal about Mr. Hancock, but I could probably name you 40 male MPs who've got into trouble of some kind 
along the same sort of lines, moments of madness in the park or whatever it might have been. I can not name you, well, I probably could name you one woman that has got themselves into a similar trouble. But why do our people not, why do our members not see that women are solid, reliable, hardworking, committed? And and I think there's a big part of this is because men like risk or appear to like risk. <laughs> and I think women are risk averse. And so therefore, to get women who are prepared to go into this as a career is harder because they like to plan their lives and they want to know that if they work hard, they do a good job, they're going to get promoted, they're going to get that job. And politics just isn't like that. And I think the top of the mix, the toxic mix, if you like, of stress and booze and testosterone and power ends up by getting more male MPs into trouble, if you like, than the women. And that, for me, should be a huge plus to our members picking their candidates to just bear that in mind. Mm. But somehow still, they've got this idea that their MP has to be this you know, nice young man with the nice wife and the Labrador and the mm. couple of kids and all the rest of Charismatic it. Charismatic and well, they just you know stroll onto the stage, hands in their pockets, know how to engage, and that, that is very hard for a woman. But I mean, I can assure you, and I am encouraged by the fact that the least the process through to the PAB, they are very very keen to have more women on that list to get more women to start the journey. But again, you see, you have to fill in a form to start with, obviously. A man will do it within two weeks. A woman will wait, you know, six months. It'll sit on her desk. She'll look at it every day. And, you know, one of my sayings to them is that you cannot win the lottery if you won't buy a ticket. Mm. You've got to fill that form in. You can get off the bus if you find it's not going in the direction you like. Mm. You don't have to, you know, follow it all the way. Mm. But you've got to start and see where it takes you. Yeah. Because you can't get in if you don't apply. You don't. Yeah. What resources are we giving to women huh. in parliament who are dealing with this because there's you know look it's not it's not an easy thing to be an elected person especially right now i mean i feel like maybe we're a little bit better in the uk now certainly we haven't made any progress in the states um but we're so divided and it's yeah. in politics is the new religion right so but what i find with there's this particular thing with the vitriol that women get particularly online which is not only do they get it more, more often, but there is this sexualized violence yes. that is almost entirely focused on women. Providing any resources to help women cope with that? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I think both in, in party terms, and I know that the party is doing sessions and work on how to do it, and Parliament does it too. Frankly, I think that mutual support is the best um, disinfectant, if that's the right word, or the best way of, of helping each other. But I mean, I have laid on during during COVID a few sort of events for them because I think of course a lot of them were newly elected in 2019 and they have never known Parliament how it really is and which can be you know it could be fun obviously but they haven't got to know each other and be able to use that mutual support properly and I think that they will you know as things settle down be able to make those relationships and and support each other mm. because in the end I mean you know if you're given tools how to deal with it in the end you've got to like either switch them on or switch or or you know some people just put it out there just say okay this is what this is the death threat or whatever i had today just to kind of like shock their followers to see how much violent there is and some people you know come off it whatever 
I mean, I'd love to think that this is only a period we're going through, but it probably isn't. On this point, I go back to the scenes of of Anna Soubry, you know, being kind of attacked as she was walking to Parliament. Um, I'm wondering if this is already happening or if there, if it's not, if there's a place to kind of structure it, which is if, for example, a conservative MP is being attacked online by momentum types, do Labour MPs step in? There is more cross-party goes on behind the scenes maybe than people are aware of. Mm. I mean, actually, I think what we need probably more is that when, in particular, you know, women are attacked for something, our parliamentary party, mostly men, ought to row in behind them in a more vigorous way, if you like. Because the Labour Party have become weird, but they've also sort of abandoned women as far as I can see. They don't seem I mean they're very heavily dominated by women, as you know, fifty one percent. But they they don't feel even as women friendly as we do today. They just you know, the days of the old feminists like Harriet Harman seem to be in the past. They don't seem to be talking about women's rights anymore. Mm. Um, so I don't think, although there's cross-party collaboration on some things, it's, I mean, it is back to the splits and, and within their own parties. I don't think we have that. But I mean, I remember talking to Harriet, who used to run the Parliamentary Labour Women's Caucus or whatever it's called. And I said, is, is it still, you know, because I've been on you know trips with her and know a, a lot of the Labour women. And she said, well, we're so divided amongst ourselves. And that was, in their case, the Corbyn period. They can't find enough in common, hashtag more in common, Joe Cox's creed occur, if you like, or motto. As I say, everybody is split top to toe, and we have to find a way to get back to better collaboration for the sake of women and reasserting our rights, if you like. So I can't not ask about... And it's it's come up a, a couple of times about, you know, how Labour has 51% of MPs that are women and you know, the Lib Dems have the most. I think it's at 67, slightly more now with our, with our win. <laughs> From a pretty <laughs> s- small database. Uh, uh, oh! Uh, sorry, sorry. Stick the knife Yeah, in. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. Um, well, it's possible that they have spotted... That women win. And, and one of the stats, which I'm using as often as I can when I get to places of power, uh, is that the three by-elections that we gained from Labour, which are is you know not always an easy thing to do when you're in government, mm. Chloe Smith in Norwich, Trudy Harrison in Copeland, who is an exceptional person, and we were very, very lucky to find her because she was just a community activist. And of course, our local members wanted to pick the blokes who had fought the two previous seats. And to be fair to our party chairman at the time, he knew she could win it and she has and she's now held it for two more elections. And of course, Jill in Hartlepool. And those are, I mean, all the by-elections recently have been won by women, but those are the three we've gained from Labour. And I'm hoping there's a message there. But anyway, you're going to say that other parties do better. Well, I want to extrapolate this out from just the situation in the UK and talk about how this is a trend we see in virtually every country, right? You look at Australia, you look at the United States, you look at even in Scandinavian countries where they impose 50-50 or they impose equal representation, you still see it's almost down to the further the party is to the right, the less women are represented. And so I don't have an explanation for that. And I'm wondering if you have a hypothesis. Well, I think it's partly because successful women here and most of our Women MP, our conservative women MPs come from uh, the private sector or from professional backgrounds. The Labour women come from trade unions, 
public sector, third sector. It's an easier pond in which to fish, if you like. Probably the sort of women that become MPs are already pretty successful in their professional lives. And why would they take that risk when they've got a sort of balanced life, probably better paid than they might be as they become an MP? Mm. And also because they never thought about it. And we're probably not loud enough about saying, come on in, it's a great second career. Most, well, not most, a lot of the women MPs who are there today is because I've met them somewhere on their journey and said, have you ever thought about it? Mm. Most famously, Gillian Keegan, who's the MP for Chichester, who I met at the theatre and our mutual friend said, oh, Gillian would make a great MP. And coffee the following week, tucked her under my arm and we got her over the line in two years. She's an exceptional person. And she was an apprentice in a car factory when she left school because there was nowhere to do A-levels then or today, by the way, in Houghton, where she comes from in the Merseyside. And and she is now our apprenticeships minister, which is a round peg in a round hole, which we're not very good at. But <laughs> so my point is, I think they're just not aware, if you want conservative women to find them. We're not very good about going out and looking for them, making the case for them. We want them, but... And then they're like, well, you know, maybe I'm better off being chief exec or senior in my company. Mm. But I think for most women who are quite interested in politics, they just wouldn't know how to make that first step. Where do they go? Who do they talk to? It is not for everybody. But if it is for you, and for anybody who's listening to this, find your way and I will help you because I can, I'm there. It's my job. I'm the patron saint and nothing gives me greater pride than to have found and supported these great women. So if a woman is listening to this now and wondering, hmm, is elected office for me, what should she be asking herself about the qualities she needs to have in order to make a great MP or public official? I mean, if you're the sort of person who, I don't know, shouts at the telly um, <laughs> uh, when question time is on, uh, <laughs> either your husband or your partner or your friends say, you know, you should give it a go. You're the sort of person. And, you know, you might well be somebody who says, oh, but I never been involved in politics, but you have probably saved your child's playground mm -hmm. or moved the bus stop or something. You've campaigned somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. You have got what it, you may have what it takes and you can only find out whether you have by giving it a go. And so probably, you know, have a go standing for a local government level because it, that will help you to decide whether you like knocking on doors, whether you like people, weirdly. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of politicians who don't seem to like people very much, but very rarely the women. You know, whether you want to, I, I'd slightly hate words make a difference, but, you know, if you're that sort of person, it could be for you. Mm -hmm. But you won't know unless you try it. Mm. You have to buy that lottery ticket. So let's imagine a world where somewhere between 45% and 55% of conservative MPs were women. How do you think policy or process would be different in the party? I'm not going to answer it exactly like that, because one of my things, if I see any senior minister now, I mean, I was in a meeting with the chancellor not long ago. And I said, whatever happens, make sure you've got women around the table at every meeting you do. Because I do think that decisions, I don't know how differently they would be made. And I can't answer that exactly. But I do know that you make better decisions with a mix of people. Mm. And I don't think that, I think there's a general understanding that our education system hasn't done terribly well during the pandemic. Mm. And I think that is in part because there weren't enough women in the room. Or anyway, mothers, 
and certainly mothers of school-aged children who have obviously borne the brunt of so much during the pandemic. Yes, mothers are exhausted. Mothers are exhausted. <laughs> they are, they are exhausted. on their knees, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so much of the caring responsibilities inevitably comes back to women. And I, let's hope that, you know, that will change. And by the way, you know, I think young men fathers are considerably more engaged hmm. uh, now than, you know, they ever have been before. Hmm. And, you know, I see it in my nephews and young fathers. They they do far more than they do. And that's all a good, that's a good thing. But shared parental leave would change things quite significantly. Mm. And I think there would be a better understanding of how much burden it is, is on a woman, is on a mother. And by the way, how we also get the other end of the, you know, the caring, usually for aged parent, uh, mm. aging parents, or, you know, I lost mine last year at 96. And, but it was, I mean, we all did our bit, but it's the daughters that do the heavy lifting, really. I mean, I just feel that we would concentrate more on things that matter to women. And this has been an absolute delight. I'd like to close on a few of our quickfire-ish Tilly Round questions. Let's start with, what's one lesson you've learned the hard way? Well, in 2014, I think it was, I was on a committee which did a report into food poverty and hunger. And at the launch of the report, I said, and I give you the background first, which is that every, everywhere we went around the country, and it was quite an uncomfortable place for a conservative, obviously, but we went to very poor places, went to South Shields, went to Birkenhead. Somebody in that community said, if only we hadn't lost all our traditional cooking skills, people would find it easier to make ends meet. And so when I did my bit, my speech, at the, my short remarks at the launch of this, I didn't write it down. And one of the things I said was, poor people can't cook. And uh, this woof, became a front page story. It was written up as though I blamed poor people for going to food banks because they couldn't cook. I then sort of compounded it by saying, uh, you can have a big bowl of sugary cereal for 25p, or you can have, as I did this morning, a bowl of porridge for 4p. And the reason I know that is because every year I did an international development challenge of living on a pound a day for five days. So I knew that a bowl of porridge cost 4p. Mm. But, and even though this was well before the real advent of social media, it was quite a shock to me to find myself on the front page of every paper with the implication that I'm completely out of touch with society, if you like. What don't women talk about enough? Their health issues. And if you go through the life cycle of a, of a woman through their health life, if you like, from puberty mm. through to menopause and out the other end, mm. there is a list that in a speech I did recently, you know, 12 minute speech, and I was not exhaustive in the list of things that happen to women. But do we ever talk about, do we talk about the menopause properly? Do we talk about periods properly? Do we talk about painful sex? No. Mm. I mean, we might do to our girlfriends. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Yes. Um, and to one. <laughs> to, to one or two, yeah. you know, and do, do you have, and as soon as you start, everybody's got issues around something or another that's happened to them. Endometriosis, cystitis, thrust, prolapse, menopause, infertility, miscarriage, antenatal care, postnatal care. I mean, our bodies are a heck of a mess. And yet, I mean, for the first time, the government has actually done a consultation on women's health. And I'm relieved to hear that over 100,000 women have responded to that. And I very much hope and I believe that the government are going to take this seriously. And at the same time, they've got two other big consultations out. One is sexual and reproductive health, which a lot of this comes under. And the other is violence against women and girls. 
So I think that probably thanks to an increase in the number of women MPs that we've got, that this is actually on the agenda. Mm. And I actually sent a copy of the speech to my friend, Mrs. Javid, in the hope that uh, <laughs> what did happen would happen, which is I got a text from Saj uh, saying, Laura's just shown me your speech. And as soon as the immediate problem is over, can we come have a chat about it? So that's what I talk about influence. Mm. And I'm slightly reluctant to have even told that story. But on the other hand, hey, he's listening. And if he's listening to his wife, then that's a good thing. And mm. it's a way of getting to people to make them listen. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? Well, I think I'm going to say here, same-sex marriage. I spoke in the second reading debate and my my father-in-law, who was whose whip I was, which was rather amused us both because uh, he was, had been a very senior cabinet minister and was then quite elderly. And he spoke in favor of same-sex marriage. And, and he got a, an award from Pink News, I think, because he said that when he first went to Cambridge, which would have been in the 40s, he first was introduced to homosexuality of some kind. And, and he went to see his grandfather, who was a professor of engineering, I think, at Oxford, and who must himself have been pretty enlightened. If, I mean, he must have been born in 1870s or something. And um, he said, my dear boy, they can no more help it than they could do if they were, had red hair. And um, and it was a rather sort of brilliant speech, and that was a part of it. And I did say in my speech, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would not have supported this, but times have changed and I have changed. And I guess it's really, why did I change? Well, you know, times change and I change, but my kids would definitely have been part of that. And it's just, and, and obviously, you know, it's turned out the world hasn't collapsed as a result of it. So I guess that's what I'm going to say for this one, but there's some tempting other ones. <laughs> what unfair advantage? or unearned privilege has been most instrumental to your success so far? Well, I think it's being married to an MP, actually. It has given me, I, I hesitate to use the word access, but it's given us, you know, friendships. It's given us, it's given me contacts. I'm not a threat to them. I'm not, you know, I can make stuff happen because of my husband's position. And I can text anybody, I can message anybody, they they know that I'm a values-driven person. And I think that is, yeah, it's, it's being married to an MP is the answer to that. Because mm. I don't have the responsibilities of it. I have the benefits of it, which are not always evident. But, you know, of course, I go to amazing places and I meet amazing people. And now I do that in my own right. But for, you know, 20 years or 30 years or however long it was, I did it on his coattails. And that is probably an unfair privilege for some people listening to this. Mm. What are you still insecure about? Oh, glory. Don't get me started. Well, women do suffer, I think, um, disproportionately from imposter syndrome. I don't like going outside my comfort zone very much. Luckily, my comfort zone has become a slightly larger place. So I probably am. I mean, I'm brave about lots of things. But if I think I don't know enough about something... I'm a bit insecure talking about it. I mean, I remember one of my sons saying to me, what are you nervous about? And I said, oh, people asking me questions that I feel I should know the answer to, like, you know, who's the president of Columbia? And he said, oh, that's easy. That's X. And I'm like, oh, shut up, you tarsome boy, because he reads The Economist cover to cover every week and knows those things. But that's the sort of thing that I feel I might get caught out not knowing the answer to something. But, you know, I'm 65 and what the heck. When do you feel you're most powerful? I would not say I 
ever really feel powerful, but I do feel influential. And there is a subtle difference. And I'm not terribly interested in power, certainly not for myself, but I know I can make stuff happen. And that is, I gave you the example earlier of sending the speech to my friend Laura Javid and Saj watching it. And that makes me feel good. I've had an influential moment, which I can use for the benefit of millions of women. And that's a sort of example of things that happen quite regularly. And as I say, women, they'll say to me, can you text X because they're scared of you? Well, I mean, that gives one a little thrill of excitement. But <laughs> um, yeah, so influence is for me more important than power. I think, you know, that would, that what you've just described, that finding a way into influence that then benefits, you know, potentially millions of women. I mean, that to me is power done differently. Ha uh-huh. What are you really fucking good at? I was tempted to give you a really naughty answer, but anyway, no, I know. Uh, so my instinct would be to say, I mean, the sort of thing I used to be really good at is doing like, a, you know, a huge meal for masses of people. So like for 20 people, do it all myself. I cook it all myself. I do it on a peanut because I'm passionately anti-waste, which we haven't had time to talk about. But And value for money is a really big thing for me. I made a vow years ago to never buy anything new in my life ever. Wow. which I have stuck to. So that's not to say that I, I mean, this particular outfit, which I'm dressed up as a baroness today, which you can't see, but I got it from a charity shop. So it's not to say I don't buy anything if I don't want anything new. Anyway, I asked my husband and what he thought, and he said, engaging people, what I'm really good at, which it actually is the flip side of the coin I've just described. If people want to learn more about women to win, if they want to get involved in some way, if they want to, I don't Support know, give us some money. Money. Yes. Money. <laughs> if they want to run, if they yes, want to please. give us some money. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Where should they go? Well, um, I'm now terrified. I can't remember the uh, email address, but it's info at womentowin.com. We do have, we don't spend money because I'm very frugal. And I'm like a wise virgin, always got money in the bank. But what we do do is we support every single woman who runs. So every election, we give a decent donation to every woman candidate because it's a very powerful message to the constituency that if you pick a woman, you get some money. So we have what we call a bit our business club, which is mostly women business supporters who don't want to run themselves, but want to see women doing well. And they might not even be conservative supporters, but they know they're feminists. They know that we're the ones holding it back and we have to do better. So if you're somebody who wants to support us, the business club is good fun. We have do lots of nice things with nice people. If you're somebody who is interested in learning out a little bit more, then send an email and we will get in touch and we will support you through the process. Thanks to everyone for listening. If meeting these women is valuable to you, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help us reach more incredible women to introduce you to. My hope is to elevate you and a lot of women just like you into power and to help us use that power to elevate others. Until next time, stay curious, stay brave, and keep making good trouble. This episode of the Power Done Differently podcast was brought to you in partnership with 5050 Parliament, the campaign to promote equal seats and equal say for women in Parliament. 
The views and opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect the views and positions or official policy of 5050 Parliament and do not constitute an endorsement, guarantee, warranty, or recommendation. The Power Done Differently podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast.